Blog Talk Radio. Cusick Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Don't underestimate the other guys, Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me rolling. They hating. Patrolling and trying to get me right. Cusick Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Cusick Laws Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Cusick Laws Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make them an offer again with you. Now it's time for Cusick Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is Reed Brightman. Thanks very much for listening, as we really do appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today. Remember to check out our website at kuziklaw.com. That's K-U-Z-Y-K law.com. And let your friends know about the show. People can listen to our podcast on iTunes at blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. Here on Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Reed Brightman, Robert Ryan, and Mark Leonardo, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and we cover legal current events. Today, we're going to analyze some news stories of the week, and then after that, we'll do Reed's rant and wrap things up from there. Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. The first story of the week is a story Robert's handling about the world WWE winning a dismissal of a lawsuit over two wrestlers' deaths. Robert, tell us about this story. Well, there's a little bit of background, I think, that we need to cover first. Um, uh, Earlier this year, 50 former wrestlers with uh, WWE filed a class action lawsuit against Vince McMahon, uh, the owner of WWE and its chief promoter. Um, And the allegation was that these wrestlers were suffering from something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, which is kind of an Alzheimer's-like neurodegenerative disease that's associated with repeated hits to the head. Now, this is the same type of lawsuit that was also filed by former players against the NFL and also the NHL. Uh, relating to former players saying that they were not aware of the long-term effects on their brains of repeated concussions they suffered during their playing years. Now, what happened this week was that two uh, former wrestlers, Nelson Frazier and Matthew Osborne, um, they had alleged, or their survivors had alleged, wrongful death claims against WWE, saying that CTE had actually led to their deaths. This was a different type of claim than most of the people involved in the class action lawsuit who are still alive and are said to be suffering from this neurological disorder that is preventing them from living a decent life. Um, these two gentlemen, in fact, passed away, but now their lawsuits have been thrown out by the U.S. District Court judge presiding over all of these lawsuits that are pending in Connecticut. Wasn't it that they were kind of reaching and they're they're trying to blame normal accidental deaths or, or deaths due to uh, health conditions uh, not related to CTE on CTE just to grab a buck? Well, I don't know if it was just to grab a buck, although certainly monetary damages is what they were seeking. But you raise a good point, Reed. Um, These two uh, claims were pretty easily disposed of by the district court judge in Connecticut because it was easily – it was easily established by WWE and its lawyers that their deaths had nothing to do with CTE. In fact, Nelson Frazier, who I believe wrestled by the name Viscera, uh, 
weighed 500 pounds during his wrestling career and died of a heart attack and diabetes shortly after his retirement. Matthew Osborne actually uh, died as a result of an accidental overdose from opiate ingestion. So in that particular case, the WWE lawyers had a pretty easy time of convincing the judge that, yeah, like you said, CTE had nothing to do with uh, these two gentlemen's death. And so the judge agreed and threw out the lawsuit. Yeah, well, opiate, isn't that like heroin or something? Well, no, it's, actually it was painkillers. But, you know, oh. if you think about the, the overall status of this lawsuit, you know, Vince McMahon and WWE are known for a very pugnacious litigation style. They have fought very, very hard on these claims and have had some success in court. However, there are a number of these claims from, uh, from surviving wrestlers who are no longer wrestling but who do contend that they have suffered brain damage. And their allegation is that WWE did two things. First thing they allege is what the NFL players allege, which was that WWE knew about the risks uh, posed from repeated concussions in their wrestling matches and concealed those risks and the effect of those risks from the wrestlers, and therefore they should have to pay damages. The other theory is a little different than the NFL players' theory. Uh, in WWE, wrestling matches are elaborately scripted and staged by the promoter, Mr. McMahon. And so the allegation was that if the players were, or the wrestlers were injured in the course of those highly scripted wrestling matches, that was on WWE, and they were responsible because they were the ones who came up with the various uh, the matches and how they were conducted that these, pl- these wrestlers say resulted in their injuries. So Robert, yeah, but- you, you- do you see that there will be a viable lawsuit in the future if one of these wrestlers can show that they or the families can show their their loved one died from CTE? Well, I don't think you're going to find that somebody dies from CTE. Um, I think more likely is that somebody's going to die, and then somebody's going to look at their brain and see that, yes, indeed, they were suffering from CTE because this condition can really only be confirmed on an autopsy. There's no test or scan that will disclose whether or not a person is suffering from this disorder, which is caused by these repeated hits, which many wrestlers do suffer, if anybody's ever watched those matches. Um, The interesting question, though, is whether or not they're going to be able to get past all of these legal hurdles that WWE has thrown up. Remember, the NFL players were able to secure a $750 million settlement uh, for former players to help them deal with the effects of CTE after their retirement. Um, So these claims are viable, but whether any of these wrestlers will ever be able to prevail against WWE and its team of really high-powered, high-priced attorneys uh, remains to be seen. That's very interesting. Um, I think you always have cases where sometimes people will overreach. I think the guy that's 500 pounds and dies of a heart attack, it's kind of hard to link that to you know, his wrestling career and CTE, even if he he did have it. But, you know, they're going to try. All right, well, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice, and we're going to move on to the next story, which is Mark Leonardo's story about the most dangerous intersections in California, a new study showing uh, various dangerous intersections of 10 or more accidents. Mark, tell us us about this. Right, there there was a new study that just came out this past week that shows uh, the most dangerous intersections in California, uh, based on uh, motor vehicle collision data from 2015. And so in this study, in order to qualify as being considered dangerous, there, as you just mentioned, there has to be 10 or more accidents at the particular intersection. 
So, you know, again, this was a California study only on accidents solely within California last year. So there were 444 total intersections that they ranked um, from 435,000 compiled collision records. That's a lot, 435,000. This is according to um, data compiled by the statewide Integrated Traffic Record System, otherwise known as SWITERS. Mm. So in 2015, there were nearly 7,300 crashes and almost 7,500 injuries from those crashes, including 57 fatalities at those 444 intersections. So the average number of accidents per intersection was 16.4, and for injuries it was 16.8 last year. Now, not surprisingly, in L.A., uh, they had the most dangerous intersections with 221, which is basically one half of the 444 that were ranked. Now, second place was Sacramento, which only had 13 dangerous intersections, a noticeable difference from L.A.'s 221. Really? You're telling me that San Diego had less than 13 dangerous intersections? Sacramento, yeah, that's it. What about San Diego? Um, well, in, I, in other I words, if Sacramento that... is number two, that means San Diego and San Francisco and, and other big uh, areas. Lanc- I, could, I can give you 13 intersections in Lancaster that are deadly. This doesn't well, seem very accurate. Only 39 were outside of uh, Southern California, so it's very few up north. Well, Mark, but, uh, what makes the intersection dangerous? Is it just because the frequency of the accidents somehow yes. we relate back and say, oh, it's, since there's so many accidents there, it must be dangerous? Or is there some other characteristic or feature of these intersections that leads to the conclusion they're dangerous? Well, this particular study was just based on the frequency of accidents at the intersection, which had to be, like I said, 10 or more. Well, so, does it have to do with the volume of vehicles that might pass through the intersection as well, though? No. The, the, the study was just based on crashes. For, so, for example, the number one most dangerous intersection is located at Devonshire Street and Reseda Boulevard in the North Ridge really? area with uh, 24 crashes and 41 injuries, which ironically happens to be just around the block from uh, Los Angeles Police Department Station. Other spots that were really uh, dangerous were Imperial Highway and Vista Del Mar, uh, Balboa Boulevard and Nordoff, uh, Lindley Avenue and Roscoe. Those were, like some of the, those were all in the top five in California. So when you take into consideration all the crashes that occur in Los Angeles, including pedestrians and people on bikes, uh, the study said motorists were at fault 41% of the time, pedestrians were at fault 31% of the time, but bike riders were only responsible 1% of the time. So those are the Hmm. worst places in terms of general crashes, but there are some places that are extremely hazardous to be on foot, it's probably not a huge surprise that the winner of that title is the intersection of Hollywood and Highland in Hollywood. Oh, wow. Uh, but hopefully this year will be a lot better because they, what they've done to alleviate this problem is they've installed what they call a scramble crosswalk. That's one of those crosswalks where you can walk in every direction, even diagonally, so there are no cars traveling in any direction. So they hope that will alleviate that problem in Hollywood. Oh, that's an excellent idea. They have those crosswalks in Pasadena in Old Town on some of their intersections there. And so nobody crosses at all unless it's safe for everybody to cross in all directions so there's no vehicles allowed into the intersection at all, which is a much safer way to go. Yeah, I think it probably probably holds up traffic, but it is the safest for for pedestrians. Yeah. Is this study uh, being used in any way to, to figure out what's dangerous about those intersections so that maybe intersections can be uh, improved and 
and safety promoted? Well, that's what they said. They want to take the, this, this data and go to the cities and talk about these intersections and see what can be done to make them more safe. So, I think that some cities, they, they have installed roundabouts because they're, they're perceived as more safe. I'm not sure. All right. Well, uh, again, this is Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice, and we're going to move on to Robert's story. Very interesting story came out about Tesla. Tesla's own numbers show that the autopilot system has a higher crash rate than human drivers. However, the sample size is just one, so I don't know how reliable this is. Robert, tell us what you think. Well, we've we've talked about Tesla on a number of uh, past occasions on this show, and we've done a number of interviews with national media concerning this whole issue of Tesla and what it calls its autopilot feature. You know, the issue has been that it somehow lulls the driver into thinking that it's a fully autonomous driving uh, assist for the vehicle that doesn't involve any driver interaction whatsoever. And of course, we know that's not the case at all. Um, the issue has come to a head recently where there have been some fatalities where drivers using the autopilot feature have been killed. Uh, we're all familiar with that case in Florida last May where the gentleman, when he was using the autopilot feature, the car crashed into the side of a tractor trailer because the cameras of the feature couldn't distinguish the side of the tractor trailer from this bright sky behind it. Um, and a lot of criticism has befallen Tesla because of the way they market autopilot and because of the way they talk about it. And here's another example, I think, where it's getting criticized for how it characterizes what it says is the safety of this feature. You know, it prominently says every time there's any type of accident that Teslas are way safer than any other vehicle on the road and that the statistics bear this out. However, if you look at what they're talking about, they're talking about these gross statistics that don't only involve cars and being operated by human drivers, but also crashes involving bicyclists, pedestrians, buses, and 18-wheelers. And so somebody has done a study that said that if you actually compared the true figures with drivers, human drivers, obviously, of cars and trucks, that in fact the, the Tesla autopilot, because it is just one particular incident that they're using in that study, is, uh, is actually less safe than a human driver. In fact, if you talk about human drivers, there's one crash per, per 470 miles, 70, 470 million miles driving a Tesla, and with respect to the autopilot, there has been one crash per 220 million miles. So this study concluded that contrary to Tesla's PR, in fact, it's twice the rate for a fatality when the autopilot is engaged. That's really interesting. I wonder if Tesla is going to be brought to task for that, you know, in some type of a false advertising claim, although th this does seem to be pretty... Uh, preliminary and not based on a lot of samples. Well, Tesla is already getting tremendous heat for the name itself. As a matter of fact, right. the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has urged Tesla to change the name so that drivers are not lulled into thinking that they turn on the autopilot and then they can watch a movie like that fellow in Florida was doing when he was killed crashing into the side of that tractor trailer. You know, right. the, the idea is that people are getting the wrong idea because there is a lot of 
news these days about driverless and totally autonomous vehicles. You know, Google has one. There's a fleet of taxis in Pittsburgh that are totally driverless. They're totally autonomous vehicles. And, you know, NHTSA and other regulators and other traffic safety experts are concerned that consumers are going to confuse an autonomous vehicle that doesn't allow any driver interaction at all with this autopilot feature, which does require the driver to maintain engaged with his hands on the wheel and alert and watching what the car is doing. You know, there's, I really believe there's nothing that can substitute for a human being watching. And if I were in a, an automated car, I'd be very nervous. Unless it's, you know, the subways I get. Even though, even though the subways are on a track, they have a subway driver. They have some engineer just looking out. But uh, it just seems very dangerous to, to, to rely on a machine to drive a car and to watch a movie or completely disregard your own safety. All right, so we will move on now. Uh, Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice, our last story, is Mark's story about a bill that has been introduced to do away with our electoral, electoral college in voting for the president. This has been with, uh, with us. It's been a part of our Constitution since the very beginning of our country, and it's very important for, for states' rights, particularly small state rights. I'll be very interested to see how this plays out. Mark, tell us the story. Well, it seems, you know, half of the country is happy with the election of Donald Trump and the other half is not. And the right. Hillary supporters are more upset because she apparently won the popular vote. Now, I say apparently because they're still counting the votes in several states. They won't change the outcome, but they'll only change the total numbers. Now, every time we have this situation where a presidential candidate wins the popular vote, as Hillary apparently has, yet loses because of the Electoral College vote, there's a big hullabaloo about scrapping the Electoral College and replacing it with a straight popular vote of the people. So the soon-to-be-retired California Senator Barbara Boxer has introduced a bill to do just that. Now, this isn't the first time she's introduced such a bill, uh, but she's obviously failed in the past, but she's going to try one more time before she retires. This what would it take to pass that bill? Isn't it like a supermajority? Because it's a constitutional well, amendment. It would require um, – in order for it to it be passed in Congress, but then the states would have to pass it by three-fourths within seven years of its passage in Congress. So an amendment to the Constitution. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Correct. I see. Okay. So well, let's it has talk to be about the Electoral the College. I mean, wasn't the Electoral College originally proposed by the slave states so that they could ensure their representation was not diluted by the fact that much of their population were not citizens and could not vote? Yeah, that, that's where it all stemmed from was because of slavery. So In isn't this states. kind of an anachronistic uh, sort of like leftover from a prior era when if we don't have those types of issues – why wouldn't a democracy say that, hey, the person who got the most votes wins the election? Well, the problem is that small states, Robert, states with small populations like Rhode Island, uh, they would have virtually no say. And states with big populations like California uh, would really control the outcome of the election. So what would happen is politicians, well, the president, he'd go campaign in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Dallas, uh, maybe Miami, and that would be it. They'd focus on just the big cities uh, in the big states. And, and if they win those states, no matter how the rest of the country votes, it's, it wouldn't matter. Well, um, but wait a second. If, if we have the popular vote control the outcome, then every vote matters. I mean, every vote in every state would matter. 
I mean, why does it matter what state the vote is in if all of the votes are going to be counted and the winner is the one who gets the most? I mean, if the idea was to preserve state rights because of the slaveholding states, it seems to me that I'm wondering whether that in a modern democracy, that idea really should should still hold credence. It's a very good, very good question. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how that how that plays out. So we almost, we're going to... It almost got overturned back in 1970 during the Nixon era. It actually got approved through Congress, and then it, uh, well, it died in the Senate on a filibuster. And, but even Nixon was in favor, it, favor of it. That's interesting. Yeah. Trump, Trump tweeted, tweeted about this in 2012. He said that the Electoral College is a disaster for democracy. But then yesterday he says the Electoral College is actually genius that it brings all states, including the smaller ones, into play. <laughs> right. Uh, be, are you surprised? Say whatever benefits plot? them at the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, we're going to move on. Uh, we have a great guest next. And listen to this clip as an introduction. Tommy, if I was going to break your ball, I'd tell you to go home and get your shine box. Oh, this kid, this kid, this kid was great. They, they used to call him Spit Shine Tommy. I swear to God, oh, he'd make your shoes look like mirrors. Excuse my language. He was terrific. He was the best. And he made a lot of money, too. Salud, Tommy. No more shines, Bill. What? I said no more shines. Maybe you didn't hear about it. You've been away a long time. They didn't go up there and tell you. Uh, I don't shine shoes anymore. <laughs> Frank Vincent is an American actor. He's played roles in several films for director Martin Scorsese, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, Casino. He's lent his voice talents to video games, most notably as Salvador Leone in the Grand Theft Auto series, and played crime boss Phil Leotardo in the HBO series The Sopranos. I loved that show. I wish they would bring it back somehow. And I loved all of those movies. Frank, it is a pleasure to have you on. Hello, how are you? I'm doing just fine. Coming down from a little cold, you could probably hear in my voice. Uh, it must have been fabulous working with uh, um, on, on these shows. And uh, Joe Pesci is just great in Casino, and I, I understand you've killed him a couple of times. Tell us, tell me about that. Uh, well, Joe killed me actually in, uh, in ah, and he killed me in in in. Uh, Goodfellas. Right, right, right. Even with him in, in, in Casino. When, when he killed you in Casino, was that with the baseball bat? No, no, he didn't, no, uh, no, he didn't kill me in Casino. I killed him. Yeah, with, yeah, with the bat, yes. It was a bat. Yeah, I, I see that. I, that was an amazing scene. Um, so of all the mob characters you yeah, played, which one do you think uh, has the closest... Person that uh, personal personality that resembles yours. Well, that's a good question. I have to think of that one that resembles mine, because because my personality is in all of them. So yeah. I don't know if one is specifically more more me than not. So I I could say that that. They're all my personality. I mean, it's, it's you know, I, people think you go in and you act and you act like somebody different. You can only act like yourself, but you can you can do something with the lyrics that they give you and the and the writing that they give you to make it uh, to, to to deal with the emotional or the 
or the or the to, to, you know the emotional aspect of the character. So, so somebody is playing a character, but it's really an extension of themselves. It can't be anything else. Uh huh. So when you when you're playing some mobster, and you're going to kill some guy, how do you how do you deal with that? I mean, in real life, I'm sure you wouldn't want to kill anybody. Absolutely not. I'm, I wouldn't kill nobody. <laughs> I'm, I'm a soft, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an easy going guy. I don't get along. I get along with everybody. I'm very That's good. Uh, yeah, and but the, but you see, um, um, it, it adds a lot to. It means a lot from the environment in which you come. Now, I grew up in, in playing you know, honky tonk nightclubs in, in throughout the eastern seaboard, and I grew up in an era of when they were prohibited. They were not prohibited. They were they were, uh, they were owned by mob guys. Now, I met all I met all the real mob guys, and, and this starts with Joe too, because Joe and I. We're together. We, we played music together for seven years. No. Oh. So, so, so Mrs. His brilliant saw the, the the chemistry that we had off off screen, and he put it on screen. So that that worked very well for the characters, especially you know, and you see us, you see us in and Christina are walking in a park, parking lot, and we're talking. And and, uh, and uh, we're covering our mouth so so nobody could could read lipis. And there's a lot of different scenes that we did together that we had the chemistry to work in, and that made it made the chemistry chemistry made it work better. So so we grew up in we grew up in an era of the '60s where where who owned all these nightclubs were were, were mob guys of a, a very echelon of highs lows. But they were all they were all uh, these street guys. These all guys that grew up that way, and uh, you know, second generation Italian American mostly. So we were we were influenced characteristically by the and when we had to play a role that way, that's who that's who we who was our references. Interesting. And did did you ever did you ever meet any guys that were really you know, real bad guys, and you had to deal with them. But met all the bad guys. Did you ever have any yeah. problems with them? I've had trouble. I've had I've had uh, moments with them. I had a, um, well, I had a a, a character. Well, I, I don't want to don't names I can mention, but uh, I used to work uh, when I first when I first came off Raging Bull. I was working as a host in a restaurant and the owner of the restaurant said you save that table five for some good fellas who are coming from Long Island. Okay, and I saved the same table five and then a few good fellas from New Jersey came in. Oh. And they wanted to sit at that table and I said, No, we're saving it. He said, We're just saving it. For who? The people that are better than us? And they sat down, I had to go to the boss and I told the boss you know, I had a problem with the so-and-so, so-and-so. So, I mean, those are the elements that you had to deal with. You had to be very careful because these people were very ego-motivated and uh, and uh, they they wouldn't take less than what they thought they deserved, especially from a, from a, a host in a restaurant. You know, I mean, uh, we, we, we're, not, we're not what you think we are in real life. 
far as as far as the the, the, uh, the characterizations of, of I mean, we'll play bad guys. I mean, and it's fun to play a bad guy. You know, I mean, you can you can you can do things that you wouldn't normally do, say things you wouldn't normally say. Sure. So I understand in 2006 you wrote a book called A Guy's Guide to Becoming a Man's Man. Uh, what a, guy's, you... a, guy's guide, a Guy's Guide to Being a Man's Man. Right. Do you think that uh, traditional masculinity no longer exists in today's culture, particularly you see all these people rioting when they don't get what they want and complaining about political correctness? Somebody says, I don't like your clothes. They get all upset and want to cry. What, what's going on in society today? Explain to me that question again. What do you think that the the traditional masculinity, the macho that used to be around, does that still exist in today's culture or or no? I I don't think it does. I I think it's different because we bring it out in in the book because um, I think today uh, you see a couple, you see a, a beautiful young lady dressed up nice, you see a guy with with, t- with a t-shirt on, right. you know, with his hair all messed up, and uh, I don't know, maybe I don't know about chivalry is lost. <laughs> chivalry, yeah, and and it's, and the disheveled is is in disheveled is in, is look. Right. He never did that. I I, I had a group of a, a band, my own group, we had quartets, quartet. We wore tuxedos every night. We we used to work in nightclubs. Where you couldn't turn the club unless you had a jacket on, right. and and intermissions. When I had taken intermission, I wasn't allowed in the club unless I kept my jacket on, and I played there. Yeah, well, that's the good old because, days. Why? Because if, if somebody comes without a jacket, they see you in there without a jacket. They say he's in there. I can get in there. Right. Craig, we're we're kind of running out of time, so we're going to have to wrap it up. But I really appreciate you being on our show, and I want to remind our listeners to check out Frank's website, frankvincent.com, F-R-A-N-K-V-I-N-C-E-N-T.com. And I appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate listeners listening, and we'll see you same time next week. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.